the Russian ransomware hack of the NRA worsens, and an interview with emergency medical trainer Henry Robertson. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I made the devil run. I gave him poison just for fun. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I am your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also the founder of TheReload.com, where you can go and buy a membership today if you would like to get this podcast a day early, and you'd like access to dozens of exclusive pieces of analysis on gun politics and gun news, and also exclusive reporting that we have over there. You can head over. Your members get two months included for free as part of their package. And we would love to have you join because the Reload is 100% reader funded. No other funding sources at this point in our existence. Six months in, we've done a lot of reporting. We broke a lot of big news stories on the NRA, the ATF, President Biden, just across the board, stuff you will not be able to get anywhere else and stuff that is 100% supported by you, the reader. So head on over, check it out and consider buying today. We're going to start today with our contributing writer, Jake Fogelman, talking a little bit about what's going on with the Supreme Court. Uh, yeah. So this week, both you and I, Steve, we uh, kind of dug into a little bit what we think is going to happen going forward after the, we heard oral arguments last week. Um, I uh, went a little deeper. I, I teased it last week what the Supreme Court might do in terms of setting a standard of review for Second Amendment cases. Um, so in a member exclusive piece, I kind of dug into what the text history and tradition arguments look like coming from both sides, um, how both sides have a, a good faith argument to, to make uh, under that claim um, and how the court establishing that might give gun owners some room for optimism to, to see courts strike down some restrictions. But I don't think it'll be too broad. Um, right. And, and because. I guess they they have to go with something like that, right? It seems like in, in terms of what Kavanaugh believes and maybe what a number of the other justices believe, given what was said in Heller, right, where they rejected balancing tests, they rejected things like traditional levels of scrutiny, uh, like even including strict scrutiny, which would probably strike down almost all gun laws uh, in, in the country. That's right. Uh, or at yeah. least quite a lot of them. And instead, they they looked at this approach that was more based on what the text of the amendment says and how it's been historically interpreted, especially near when it was actually ratified in the law right. in the founding era. And so, yeah, you looked, you looked a bit deeper at what that could actually uh, manifest as in real life. And then I also did the same thing on a, perhaps a smaller scale, because that's one of the important things that could come out of the, the, the ruling, right, is a, a new right. standard to judge all other gun cases by. Right. But we also have what is going to happen in this specific case with gun carry laws, because New York's law is specifically being challenged here. It's, it's called a May issue law, which allows essentially government officials to deny people concealed carry permits if they believe they don't have a good reason to have one. So it's a very subjective standard. So even if you go through the whole application process, you pass the background check, you do the required training, they could still deny you a permit. And in most cases, that's what they do. Right. 
uh, unless they believe you have some sort of special good reason to have one. So the question is, are they going to strike down that law, that standard, which is currently in place in, well, only in eight states, but they're eight rather large states, right. popula you know, population-wise. Uh, you know, places like New York, California, New Jersey, Massachusetts, Maryland. And so about 25% of the country lives in these states. So it would have a minor impact on the number of states, but it would have a pretty big impact on the number of people affected. And it seems likely from going through oral arguments like you did, uh, that they're going to probably strike down that that law. And I think they're that's probably right. going to yeah. retreat. Yeah, they'll probably retreat to shall issue, and which is going to be uh, a pretty big change because basically, I mean, it's a minor change, I guess, in one sense, in that the only thing that changes is you take away that government discretion over who can who can get a permit. But that means a lot more people are likely to get permits, although right. not maybe not as uh, dramatically as the gun rights advocates would like to think or the gun control advocates are worried about. Right. Yeah. Right. I think you're not likely to see a shall issue regime that you see, for example, in my state, Colorado, where it's pretty straightforward, minimal training, relatively low fee, and you get it within you know a month or so. Um, I think the Supreme Court, as you said, is very likely to, to strike down May issue, but I don't think they're going to really touch the requirements that states are allowed to do in order to uh, institute shall issue, which is something you kind of touched on in your piece. So it'll be interesting to see how uh, onerous these states make the restrictions um, should they be forced to go to a shall issue regime. Right. Because I and I talked a little bit about the difference between where I live, right, Virginia, which is very similar to Colorado, where you live in terms of its gun carry permits and the process to get them. But if, if you go across the river here into D.C., D.C. has a shall issue law. They were forced into it by the courts. Uh, so they're pretty good analogy, I think, for what's going to happen in these other states that are forced to adopt shall issue by the court if the court does end up going in this direction, which is not a guarantee. Oral arguments, things said in oral arguments are not guaranteed to be how a justice comes out in the final ruling. But I think it's a fair, fair to look at what they said and make some uh, assumptions based off of that. And yeah, it looks like most of them want to move to a shall issue regime as the baseline for all gun carry permits in the country. Uh, because obviously the, you also have permitless carry, which just doesn't require any permits as long as you can legally, <clears throat> sorry, legally uh, possess a firearm, you can legally carry it. And in, in a lot of states now, 21 states have that policy. Now the most popular is still shall issue at this point, but if they move to that, if they force these eight remaining states to move to that, they'll probably end up doing what D.C. did, which <clears throat> is effectively to, yes, have shall issue, but they make the requirements for what you have to actually go through to to get the permit much higher than a lot of other states do. So in D.C., you have to not just pass a, an NRA gun safety course like a lot of states require because that's a, a widely available course, right? The, the National Rifle Association still 
has the largest training apparatus in, in the country, really probably in the world. Right. Uh, and so it's there are a lot of NRA certified instructors, including myself, frankly, <laughs> um, uh, who exist throughout the country. And you can easily get an NRA basic pistol course in any state that you want. But DC does not allow that to be the, it doesn't accept NRA courses as training for concealed carry. Uh, unlike Virginia and most other states that have shall issue. Instead, they require their own proprietary training, which can take up, which is 16 hours. And you have to get a, a trainer that's specifically certified by the city. So there's not a lot of them. And the training costs, you have to go outside the city to get to a shooting range because they don't have any in the inside of the city limits. The training costs about you know, several hundred dollars in most cases. <clears throat> and that's on top of really high fees that they charge for both the application and for fingerprinting. Uh, I think it's 110 bucks just to apply. And then <clears throat> backlogs make it really uh, take a long time to actually get the permit as well. There's a 90 day waiting period. And then uh, once you've gotten the permit, <laughs> there's a lot of gun free zones that they've implemented all over the place in DC, including ones that are mobile that follow uh, diplomats around so like if a diplomat is traveling in their car and they're driving by you there's a there's a gun-free zone a theoretical gun-free wow. zone that you can't carry that travels with them around the city everywhere uh permitted events so like protests and things like that you can't carry at so uh, in theory if you saw one of these things happening and they were coming towards you like a march or a diplomat You'd have to, I don't know, you'd have to like run away <laughs> to stay legal. Uh, obviously in practice, I, I think they have to like give you a verbal warning before they could arrest you or something like that. But sure. uh, they also don't allow you to carry on public transit, which is perhaps a bigger deal, especially for people who are low income. And so it's resulted in really only a few thousand permits being issued in the city over the last uh, several years that they've had shall issue. And I think that's likely to be what you'll see happen in a lot of these jurisdictions that currently have may issue. They'll just make it, they'll go to shall issue, but it'll be a really high bar and they won't also allow reciprocity. So right. you'll have to get their permit in order to carry inside of their state. Right. Uh, I think that's, yeah, I think that's probably right. Um, so you'll see maybe a modest increase in concealed carry permits right away just because of the shell issue, but it'll still be kind of prohibitive for certain people to really get a lot of permits. And it also, some of the restrictions that they'll allow kind of speaks to uh, some good comments we got on our pieces. Uh, Reload member Cody Claxton was sort of asking about, you know, well, would a positive ruling affect how you know local gun restrictions work? And I think I think you and I both agree the court's not really going to touch that in this ruling, we don't think. Um, and future litigation is going to have to really settle that question. I'm sure it'll work its way through the courts in the next few years because that's that's almost certain to come up after a, a positive ruling in this case. Yeah, I think that's the right takeaway there. I think what they'll do is probably say that restrictions on certain sensitive places is presumptively constitutional yeah uh so places like courts or uh schools could be gun free zones effectively uh under this ruling i would expect that to be the case they they, they sort of talked a little bit about this in, in oral arguments and the plaintiffs weren't against 
those sorts of restrictions. Right. And I think Cody's getting at um, more what DC has tried to do, or even Virginia in recent uh, years where they've allowed localities to create ever expanding and multiplying gun free zones. <laughs> right. That sort of create this Swiss cheese uh, effect of, you know, you can carry here, here, maybe over there, but there's all sorts of little holes in your area where you can carry all over sure. the place. And that can make it obviously more difficult to legally, you know, to comply with, with the rules right? as a, just a normal person. But I don't think the court's going to touch that stuff right? in this ruling. I think they're just going to go and look at the standards, whether it's the, the standard for issuing a concealed carry permit uh, or the standard for deciding gun cases. Those are the two things I'd expect them to actually deal with in this case. And then they'll probably just wait, like you said, for later litigation to really break down what exactly the limits should be for these gun-free zones uh, in these in these laws. So that's what I'd expect to see in that case. But we also had uh, a big report this week on the NRA, <clears throat> a big update on the hacking that has occurred there. Uh, there was a Russian ransomware group that attacked the NRA at the end of last month and started publishing internal documents, or what they claim are internal documents. And the first couple of dumps got, they actually got a lot of media attention, NBC News, pretty much everyone covered it. Uh, but the the files were relatively innocuous. They were things like the meeting minutes from the NRA Foundation's uh, latest meeting that decided who was going to be running, you know, on the board of the the group and and the different movements of executives around in there, stuff like that. There wasn't anything terribly uh, scandalous or important that came out in those leaks. But the latest leak, right, uh, Jake is. Much worse. Right. Yeah. The financial information, bank account numbers, social security numbers, um, obviously a lot more sensitive information that is pretty damning for that to be out there, to say the least. Yeah. It's really unfortunate because it's a lot of staff and former right. staff of the NRA whose information has been exposed. Right. Including, yeah, full social security numbers their addresses, partial social security numbers. You also had records that indicated whether they were ever paying a tax lien or child support or uh, any sort of garnishment of their wages. Really, anyone who's ever received a physical check from the NRA should probably look at their finances to ensure that no one is trying to steal their identity and should probably reach out to the NRA. The NRA hasn't issued any statement. They didn't respond to, uh, they didn't send a, a statement when we informed them of this attack and the information that was out there. Obviously, we're, we don't share the documents themselves because we don't want to expose anyone's personal information. And we don't share details on how to find the documents because we don't want them to spread. However, they've already spread is the problem. The the site that the hackers set up on the dark, the dark web. Uh, so it's, you have to, it's, you can't just get to it by going through your, your regular web browser, uh, but it is publicly available. Anyone that 
understands how to get to the, a dark web site and knows the address can find it. And it's been viewed according to their counter. Now, obviously, these are thieves and hackers, so they're not the most trustworthy people in the world. But sure. they their, their counter claims that 8,000 people have viewed these documents already before we reported on them. And they had already been downloaded and collected uh, into other methods of sharing and have been shared around on the Internet and uh, in the activist community for uh, several days now. So I, th I thought it was important to break this news so that people could know to look at their financial information to make sure that they're not compromised. And because uh, there was no public announcement from the NRA. And additionally, the person I reached who right. whose information had been exposed said that they had not been informed of this before I spoke to them. So I think it's imperative that the people who've been affected by this know that they go out and try to protect themselves. Hopefully the NRA will also offer some sort of protection to them as well. They haven't issued a public statement on this since the first news of it broke, and they haven't said what they're doing to contain the leaks or, or end the hack. Now, the hackers themselves have changed the status of the NRA hack from ongoing to completed on their website. Uh, we don't know why. They didn't post any sort of explanation for that, but perhaps the the hack is over now and we won't see any more of these kinds of documents coming out. Hopefully that's the case. Right. But it's hard to know. And you had uh, NRA board member Philip Journey wondering himself whether or not more information is out there and perhaps even being sold and looking for further information from the NRA itself about what's going on. So hopefully we'll have an update on that soon. Yeah, it's been almost two weeks since that news broke, so it'd be nice to at least get an update from the organization and, and kind of figure out you know, what they're doing to, to get a, a handle on this situation. Yeah, absolutely. But um, right now, we are going to head over to an interview with Kenny Robertson, who is the lead medic medical consultant for Wex Gunworks, talking about their new program where they train both first responders and civilians in, you know, how to effectively deal with emergency medical situations that might arise while you're carrying your firearm, right? We talk a lot about how, what we should do with gun training and the equipment we should carry if we want to carry a gun around, what kind of gun, what kind of holster, all that stuff. We spend hundreds and hundreds of dollars, thousands maybe <laughs> in your case on carrying but we don't do much on the medical side. So that's what they're hoping to change down there in, in Florida. And I think it's an interesting program. So we're, we're going to head over and talk to Kenny now and, and see what they've got going on. All right. I'm here with Kenny Robertson from Wex Training Group out of uh, Florida. They've got a new program to try and uh, bring that sort of first responder training to the general public. Kenny, can you just tell us a little bit about your background, a little bit about what you're trying to accomplish here, just where you come from and how you got into this? Yeah, absolutely. First, thanks for having me on, Stephen. Uh, it's a real honor to be on your show. So, uh, yeah, I spent 22 years in the military, 
I did a little bit of time in the Marine Corps uh, before 9-11. And then I kind of missed it immediately. Regret, buyer's remorse. So I got into the Army and I saw the other side of the fence look pretty good. So I joined Special Forces and that was a pretty long road. But I uh, went to 5th Special Forces Group and I spent my career there. I uh, spent my, my time in Iraq, Afghanistan, Lebanon, Syria, all the vacation hotspots. If you guys look at the property out there, sort of pointing in the right direction. But uh, <laughs> so I was on several different ODAs within Fifth Group Operational Detachment Alphas. That's the 12 man team. Uh, and, you know, our honestly, what our purpose is, is to force multiply. So being a force multiplier just means that the 12 of us on a team are going to go somewhere deep behind enemy lines. We are going to link up with some indigenous forces and we're going to train them to be less like them, more like us. So we've got a variety of different things that we do specifically shoot, move, communicate, do medicine. So while doing this in a foreign language, which separates the special forces Green Berets from other uh, tier one, tier two units is that we'll go there, link up with all these forces, maybe three or 400 guys and a 12 man team will take them and teach them some weapons tactics, everything from basic firearm safety to advanced uh, ambushes to close quarters battle, and then also to uh, gather intelligence. We'll teach them about uh, some engineering, some demolitions. We'll teach them some communications techniques. And then specifically my job was medicine. So I was the team doc on there, the, the 18 Delta. So using that experience after retirement, after 22 years, when uh, I moved out of South Florida, you know, there's really a need to still have this training while speaking English to people that really want to learn this. And we can see this every day, no matter what news station that you're looking at, we see that there is a need for basic fundamentals of firearms and certainly for medicine. And that's really where we try to bring something different to uh, what a lot of other gun shops are doing. So at Wex Gunworks, we've already got a pretty long and outstanding history of people that have been coming to this to, to this family-owned business, uh, owned by Brandon Wexler. He's a 9-11 firefighter on the ground at the Twin Towers, and thus has moved down here since then. And uh, it's been around 11 years or so that this shop has been brick and mortar in Delray Beach. And there's a lot of foot traffic that comes through there. And he's got such a good reputation in the community that so many people want to buy firearms from this gun shop. Well, with that comes the responsibility of being a good gun owner and understanding that all the safety aspects that come along with it, not just the basic things, but that some shooters want to go a little bit more advanced. So we formulated WEX Training Group. That way we can facilitate having a multitude of different courses related to guns. Well, since I'm a little biased, in my opinion, with my background, I wanted to involve medicine. So there's a lot of folks out there that don't know basic medical concepts from stopping the bleed, which is the number one point uh, cause of preventable death in the world, exsanguination. So really, we started kind of dialing in uh, our initiative, which was reaching out into the school systems. Stephen, I've got a list of, of things that are just... You know, and I can't even say they're shocking anymore, but since 1999, when Columbine happened, we're looking at uh, 235 different school shootings, 300 people. We're just talking schools. Ten of them were elementary schools. 
And the numbers are just outstanding with the fatalities that are involved in that, over 300. Well, we're close to Parkland. Well, being close to Parkland, just a few years ago, everybody remembers this Parkland shooting. Uh, there's a host of them everywhere from Virginia Tech, Sandy Hook, Parkland, Santa Fe. Tremendous, tremendous mass shootings. Well, Parkland is the closest one here, so I'm just going to highlight that one. Now, there's 17 fatalities, 14 students, three staff. There were folks there that exsanguinated from gunshot wounds to the lower extremities. We don't have anyone that is capable of stopping the bleeding. We don't have any equipment that's in readily available in each of the classrooms. Completely unacceptable. So here at WEX Training Group, that is one of our highlights is that we want every civilian, every school teacher, everyone down to bridging the gap between point of injury and the time that EMS arrives because you are responsible for your life. You are responsible for those around you in their lives. And without having some basic knowledge, some basic training, and some kits, some basic medical kits that help make that job a little bit easier, you're setting yourself up for failure. We can take a look at some recent events that have happened out in Hollywood as well, and we can see how some basic fundamental classes have gone a long way. Sure. Uh, yeah, and, and I think what makes it interesting to me <clears throat> from my point of view is, uh, you know, Wex training, Wex training group, part of, you know, Wex gum works. We that store has been, uh, at the forefront of a lot of, uh, stories about guns. I mean, it's a very, uh, media friendly store down there. Uh, Brandon, Brandon's given comment on a number of my stories, but, uh, in a lot of media stories, it's sort of, a one of the most high profile, uh, members of, of the gun retailer community, and what you're trying, what you're coming to do to, uh, with him is really interesting to me from the, the standpoint of, uh, you know, obviously what you're, you're talking about here with schools and training, you know, people who are not, tr uh, first responders, but who could perform life-saving, uh, you know, uh, uh, actions in emergency situations such as Parkland. Um, you know, that's super, uh, important, but also just the, the side of it with people carrying guns. I mean, you know, I carry a gun, millions of people in the country carry a gun and you do it in the, uh, rare chance that there may be a life or death circumstance that you run into in your daily life. And so you you get a gun and you get training to use the gun uh, so that you can defend yourself or, or someone else in that kind of circumstance. But it seems to me that we often overlook the other half of that equation, because if you're going to if you're planning, if you're preparing to get into a, a deadly force encounter, right, if that's part of your uh, calculation for how you, you live your life, you really ought to plan and prepare for the other half of that, which is medical response to uh, some sort of uh, life-threatening situation. Uh, I mean, obviously, you're more likely to run into uh, just uh, a, an accidental life-threatening situation than you are probably a uh, intentional um, situation where someone's trying to kill you. Like, you, there's far more accidents than there are, you know, mug muggings or murders. Uh, and you should be prepared to deal with both 
frankly. I mean, it's just, uh, to me, the logic oftentimes misses out on, on the, that other half of things. Like, you got to take into account what uh, you're going to do if you get shy, right. not just if somebody is threatening you uh, or, or shooting at you. Like, yeah, you, I agree. You should be prepared to uh, carry a gun and to shoot back if necessary or to defend, defend, defend yourself in those circumstances. But you should also be prepared to treat yourself or someone else uh, who, who's near you in a circumstance like that because you might have I to. Agree. And that, that might be the difference between life or death in those uh, situations. If you have a basic knowledge of how to apply a tourniquet, uh, how to pack a wound, you know, how to apply a chest seal, things like that. And those are the sorts of things, right, that, that your class uh, is teaching people. So, uh, you know, it was said best by really the backbone of, of this organization, Cherie DeRosa. She's been the one that's really uh, pursued pushing this out. Uh, and, she, you know, what she says, I think, resonated with a lot of folks that have come to this course because of of her. She says, why are you carrying a gun and not a tourniquet. And it made a lot of folks think, and it really launched a lot of awareness. And the idea behind all of this is just to create that awareness and get the, at the top of a mountain and, you know, have a, have a platform to speak on so that everybody can understand the importance, just like you were saying, there's another side, there's a, there's a flip side of that coin. So you've got a firearm and a threat's been eliminated or the threat has now gotten away. Um, but now what? We have an additional threat, and that threat lane is on aisle six at Kroger or Publix. Uh, there was just one, well, just a couple weeks ago, Stephen, up in uh, a Kroger in Tennessee, I believe. So a gunman walked in and put, uh, he, I don't know how many rounds he fired, but there's 12 injured. Okay, well, EMS is going to arrive. So one of the problems, so let's, let's back this up and let's take a look at Parkland. And that can translate for everything. That's kind of the base model that I use is that EMS or fire is uh, and down here in Florida, fire and paramedic are, are one of the same. But a paramedic is not going to get onto the scene until that scene is clear. So your first responder is going to be law enforcement. Well, law enforcement's job is not to save the wounded. They will. They do carry a tourniquet and they carry a couple of other small things in the car to treat themselves, but their job is to not come there and treat the wounded. Their job as law enforcement is to come to the scene, clear that area and eliminate the threat. Well, the threat is going to be the gunman. Well, fire rescue paramedics, they can't come to that scene until law enforcement has done their job and has eliminated the threat. So there lies what three minutes before law enforcement arrives and then another, however long it takes for them to formulate a plan go through, clear the subjective, eliminate the threat, find out the threat's not even there in the Parkland situation. And now 10 minutes have elapsed. Now paramedics can get onto the scene. Well, let me tell you, in less than a minute, that is when exsanguination can occur. You've got five liters of blood in your body, on average, in the adult. When 40% of that blood loss is gone, your body goes in such a hypotensive state that your brain just hits that pause button. And that's it. It's lights out. And without having somebody that knows how to minimize or stop that bleeding on the objective, your time is very limited. You don't have the time to wait for the paramedics to get there and do their job. So that's why it's very imperative, like at that Kroger, 
you might not even have the firearm. Maybe you're just deciding not to carry that day. Maybe firearms aren't your thing. Okay, both sides of the aisle will never agree to arm teachers or that everyone needs to carry a gun. Most folks don't like carrying a gun. They don't feel comfortable. Okay, well, understandable, but that doesn't mean that everyone feels that way. And that doesn't mean that those that are out to do harm to you feel that way. Matter of fact, they feel the exact opposite. So you are now a soft target. You presenting yourself as a soft target, if you can't stop your own hemorrhaging, if you can't figure out how to prevent tension pneumothorax from developing with a chest seal, vented or non, then you just decreased your life expectancy in a traumatic situation. And it is upon you to take care of yourself, train your tribe, have everyone around you know what to do in emergency situations. And that's what sets us apart as a gun shop is we don't just teach, uh, we don't just sell firearms. We sell firearms, we sell medical supplies, but we train. And that's one of the most important parts is we train with folks that have been in this industry for a very long time. We've got one of the only female firearms instructors with Cherie in all of South Florida. And we're able to do all different types of basic intermediate, advanced pistol, rifle, and incorporate medicine into all of that. So that's what really makes us unique from a lot of other uh, gun industry shops. Yeah. And I, I think that's one of the key questions here, right? Because, you know, this isn't a paid ad or anything. We're not, I'm not just, uh, you know, trying to promote right. Rex, um as much as I uh, like you guys. Uh, the question here is why, why was this unique? And so you, you actually came up to uh, Virginia to help do a demo and show me exactly what makes this class different from uh, some of the ones that I've taken in the past. Like I, I've done um, faster Colorado, which is their, the course that they uh, train teachers to carry as a nonprofit out in Colorado and, and also Ohio uh, to train um, teachers to carry firearms, uh, to get the training, the certifications they need to uh, do that in those States where it's allowed. Um, and part of that class includes a Stop the Bleed uh, mm -hmm. presentation. Um, that's very good, you know, honestly. And Stop the Bleed is a great program. And you, you mentioned it earlier. Uh, and that's that's a, what I believe is a federal program. And and people can go and get their Stop the Bleed training if they want to. In uh, we are wherever they live, there's oftentimes a government agency that's offering Stop the Bleed uh, to to the public. Now, uh, so, you know, then the question is, why? So how, why is this newsworthy? Why does this matter uh, when I can go get a Stop the Bleed class? Uh, well, in my experience going through the course, uh, or at least through the part, you know, obviously I wasn't able to go through the entire thing because you had to travel up here. Um, and so there was somewhat limited, but I was actually very impressed uh, personally uh, by the level of detail involved and the lengths that you go to to simulate a realistic scenario because it's one thing to like put a tourniquet on yourself uh which you would do in stop the bleed program or or put somebody into a recovery position right uh who's just a you know another fellow volunteer that's not actually having any sort of emergency <laughs> or uh pack a, a wound that's made out of you know ballistic gel or whatever but you i think what you do goes uh there's two there's two things that I thought were unique. One is that you go to this extra length by incorporating like actual bleeding props uh, or, or, you know, not props, but, you know, training aids that 
will bleed uh, and makes the whole uh, experience much more visceral and, and realistic in, in my uh, opinion. Like that, that's a big differentiator, I think, between what you do and what something like Stop the Lead does. But you also uh, have so much more experience personally uh, with this kind of emergency medical uh, training. And that that also sets you up because a lot of like the modern um, protocols on the civilian side have come out of what we've learned uh, on the battlefield and what you've personally experienced and what you've personally taught other uh, members of the military uh, and highly specialized members of the military uh, to do. And so that that's what really impressed me about the whole thing is that when when I went to pack a wound on, you know, your the dummy arm that you had there like one the the arm is made of ballistic gel and made to feel very real uh and then the blood you know it's made to simulate an arterial wound which is the kind that you need to really deal with quickly uh or someone's going to bleed out and uh you know the pumping of that blood out and while you're trying to pack uh uh you know uh, material into that wound to, to stop the bleeding. That is very different experience, I think, than just um, anything that I've done before in this realm. Well, trauma is real, and if you don't train the with that realism, then it's not going to be a smooth transition. So the way that we approach this is to essentially highlight working on the amygdala in the brain. Uh, which is going to be responsible for some of your fear, some of your anxiety. So if we provide hyper-realistic training equipment, these training aids, these legs, these arms, uh, we're developing um, a full-scale mannequin of full silicone ballistics that are, it's really gnarly, but with different wound patterns on there, you're seeing something as realistic as possible, uh, very Hollywood style. And it's bleeding, as you're mentioning, and you have to stop that bleed. And you get immediate feedback if it's working, if it's not. And by doing, there's two ways of learning, Stephen, endless repetition, blood force trauma. Okay, so we stick, we stay with the endless repetition in my courses. But <laughs> uh, some of the MMA fighters and some of the UFC fighters that, that come and train with me, uh, they're used to the blood force trauma part. But uh, so by doing this over and over again, if you are presented with a traumatic situation, it's going to be on a life like either an animal, which we do a little bit of animal training, uh, and a little bit of the uh, different equipment that you're going to need for uh, your your dog or law enforcement uh, working dogs, military working dogs, uh, and a human. You're going to have this realistic presentation. You need to practice with that over and over again so that it's not that much of a shock to your amygdala when you see it in real life. You're prepared to handle that situation. And as you mentioned. Yeah. And, I, you know, I think um, when you're putting on a tourniquet, like it's one thing to put on a tourniquet on yourself or a person uh, and, you know, try to find their pulse and see if it's, uh, you know, stopped at the, you know, extremity where you're trying to uh, cut off blood flow. Um, <clears throat> or even using a Doppler, like that's that's great. Mm -hmm. But when you're trying to put on a, a tourniquet on a actual bleeding, um, uh, you know, arm uh, like you provide in the class, and then 
you're actually watching the wound to see if it stops bleeding, right. you know, to know that you've accomplished the goal. Uh, I think that that is a totally different experience. And the same thing with the wound packing that we use for the leg with the, the leg wounds that we have where we're packing the wounds in these junctional areas because tourniquets aren't always the answer. They are on extremities, mm-hmm. but sometimes they're in a position where you can't get that tourniquet. So what are our alternatives? What are these different devices out there? And we cover all of that, as you remember, that we're going to go over what's right. in each one of these different products that are out there. And also, what can we use just in our possession at the time if we don't have a medical kit? So that's, you know, another thing. A lot of folks do that, but that's something that we cover. Now, you mentioned that a lot of this training spawns from the military training, and that's true. Over the past two decades, we've been in a bit of a conflict. So we've gotten a lot of lessons learned. A lot of uh, research and development has gone into making medical equipment better, more user-friendly, smaller, compact, and carryable into these uh, nice little kits. And... So part of that was uh, the TCCC program, Tactical Casualty Combat Care. So the military used that. It's basically combat medicine, what's going on during a gunfight, how we're going to relate to a direct threat, and how we're going to do medicine during a direct threat. So translating that over into the civilian world, we used the TECC, Tactical Emergency Casualty Care. So I was the director of that program at the Special Operations Medical Training Center in Fort Bragg for three years. So I was at the spearhead of the TCCC committee and now with the committee of TECC in the civilian world. So there's, there's new products that are coming out and being tested and we were testing at the schoolhouse which gives us a, a, an advantage over some of the other uh, companies out there, some of these other folks that are doing it, because we were, you know, we were leading the charge and all of the, the best products out there, easiest products out there, and how to yeah. get folks in a very simple format, going from I can't put on a Band-Aid to I've got a patient that's got three gunshot wounds, two to the leg, one to the abdomen. How do I fix this? And that's going to be the person that can now step up and fix that and stabilize a patient until emergency can arrive. Right. And uh, I also think that those uh, stories that you have from your you know, personal experience are uh, super valuable in this class as well. It's, it's something that you're able to show, uh, you know, people taking the class that you've actually done all of these right. things in real world settings under a lot of pressure and it gives you i think a lot of credibility uh obviously to uh someone that you're 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 teaching how to perform these tasks because it's one thing for uh you know uh, somebody to explain how you could apply a tourniquet it's another thing for somebody to have like an actual story uh of when they did that and saved someone's life or, or when they've seen this done uh, in the field, uh, or when they've seen mistakes made that cost people's lives uh, in the same way. You you do that a number of times during this class. Uh, actually, if you have uh, maybe an example that you want to share for the podcast in that vein, I think that would be helpful as well. This gives you a little bit uh, more credibility, I think, in teaching someone how to do these things, because you've actually been there and done, and done them. Yeah, sure. So one comes to mind. Uh, I'll withhold some of the some of the names, but 
So when I, when you first go into special forces, there's a selection process. It's between two and three weeks. They like to change it up so that you can't war game this, but and somewhere between three and 400 people will go to this trial. And you know, these are all folks that have been preparing for months and months to do this. This is what they want to do. This is what they want out of their career. So they're prepared. They're mentally ready. They're physically ready. And, uh, it's about a 30% uh, pass rate. So 70% attrition, I, I think out of 355 that went to my selection class that started over 200 quit throughout the first two weeks and maybe 90 of us got selected to go to the training, which was another two years long. But one of the first days that we were in this selection, uh, we were given the three rules of special forces and this is not just something that was done for my class, but this is a longstanding tradition and it holds true for every Green Beret that you'll ever meet. These three rules. And rule number one is always look cool. So when I first heard this, what's going on in my mind is sure, Oakley's versus Ray Bans, eh, whatever, I'll, I'll go see, but certainly got to be polarized. Right. Got to need some Merrill, <laughs> Merrill boots and some hair gel. Right. Now that's Navy SEALs. <laughs> Then uh, rule number two is don't get lost. All right, sure. We got GPS. How can we get lost? Well, on a triple canopy jungle, there's no GPS that's working. So rule number three is if you get lost, look cool doing it. All right. So I didn't have any notepads or pens on me, but I remembered those. And so that stuck with me, you know, through the entire course. And you know, Stephen, it really hit me when we were being QRF one night for another team that was, it was a simple in and out mission. This team was going to a small village and they were going to do some clearance operations in this village. There was a few uh, high value targets in there that uh, we wanted to go get. And they said, listen, we're going to have you guys on QRF, quick reaction force on standby. So we're sitting by a little campfire, maybe 30 or 40 miles away. And we're sitting next to the helicopter waiting. We've got two packages prepared, uh, an ammunition resupply package and a medical resupply package. Of course, this team, they're solid. They don't need any help. So we're sitting around listening to the radio and just kind of bullshitting and having a good time, relaxing and the radio goes off. They need both packages. So within a matter of just a couple of minutes, we're on the aircraft, aircraft spinning up, we're up in the air. All right, it's around midnight, just before. We land on the ridge line, and landing on the ridge line, you could look down the ridge line into the village, and we see tracer rounds going in both directions, going all over the place. There's machine gun fire, there's small arms fire. Things are looking fun, right? So a lot of guys are going to get... Uh, in the civilian world, sympathetic nervous system dump, right? Epinephrine or epinephrine, they're going to get vasodilated, they're going to get bronchodilated, they're going to get nervous. I think we have a dopamine dump, right? The feel-good hormone. So it's game on, right? So, and that comes with endless repetition, continuing to train over and over and over again, where this is now just normal. You know, we call it Tuesday. So here we go, going into this village when one of the guys from the other team comes walking over to me. He's got a man on his back. 
And he looks over, he's like, Kenny, hey, here, I got something for you. And he puts this guy down and there's one of our indigenous fighters and he's missing a very large section of his head, but he was still alive. Now, that might seem pretty drastic, extremely traumatic. And it was, let's not get that twisted. However, you simply do the same algorithm, the same sequence, and you stay on sequence and you can't go wrong. And that's the sequence that we teach over and over and over again. So it becomes second nature. So I'm holding this man's head together and I'm repacking it and trying to put this better uh, back together as best as I can. Meanwhile, one of my teammates is over here running the machine gun. It's a little loud when I'm trying to put this guy's head back together. No big deal, because now I've got another guy with about five bullet holes in him. And we need to cut his neck open and give him a crack all right, and put a tube down his neck. Now, this whole time, it's you know, roughly midnight. And so obviously pretty dark. I wasn't wearing any Oakley's. I was wearing Merrill's. Don't get that twisted. But I didn't have any hair gel because <laughs> I had on night vision and on my helmet. Well, at that point, I think that's when it occurred to me. That's what rule number one was, is look cool, no matter what's going on. Be cool, calm, and collected. And when you practice that and facilitate that type of practice style, using the most hyper-realistic equipment that you have, put it under a little bit of time, try to mimic a little bit of pressure as best as possible, it makes the real thing a lot less harsh. So that's what, at WEX training, that's what we like to do is from gun range stuff to medicine stuff, we like to mimic what is reality going to look like. And that's just one example of many that, uh, that I could share with you. But based off of those experiences, we like to mimic what you might see in the real world. So Brandon, being the firefighter still in Palm Beach County, he sees trauma every day. Well, every day he's on shift. Uh, and he's at one of the stations that gets a lot of work. So he might run 24 calls uh, in his 24-hour period. It's, it's pretty ridiculous some days. So with that, we can use the knowledge that I've been working with and teaching throughout the last you know, decade or so to the, what is actually happening here on the ground that firefighters see. And they marry up, and, and, and that synergy is what makes it really special that they can get the training from both. This is what EMS is going to see when they get there. This is what we're going to do, and this is what you can do, what I teach them to do prior to them getting there so that it makes a smoother transition from point of injury until the time that they get into the pre-hospital setting to the hospital. Right. Well, um, <clears throat> that's, yeah, see, that's, that's pretty fascinating. That, that kind of story really emphasizes what, uh, what you're trying to accomplish here. But in addition to training, you know, you've always done first first responders like firefighters. You want to do schools. Mm -hmm. uh, you want to do, uh, obviously, you're a concealed carrier uh, type person. Uh, but what, what's your vision long-term for this, for this program? Like what <clears throat> you want this, I, obviously right now, you know, Wex Gunworks is a, is a shop in Delray Beach, Florida. Um, what is the vision beyond that area? I mean, certainly this is something you want to take across the country is from my, what Absolutely. I understand. So that's a great point. So I've got a lot of veteran friends, a lot of folks prior 
special forces or recently retiring special forces, uh, medics, and what we call the 18 Bravo, which is the weapons sergeant on the team. He specializes in tactics, foreign weapons. So I've got a, a lot of, a small network of these folks that help me train. Uh, we'll go out to, we, we travel. We'll go out to various states and work with police departments, fire departments, large corporate uh, areas that want to get first responder training. And we'll also go to school districts. So maybe a school district in, who knows, Illinois or uh, out in Colorado or Georgia, northern Florida, it doesn't matter. We'll travel there and we'll bring all of this fantastic training equipment. We'll bring a small team of special operators and we will run a week-long training event, two-week-long training event, tailored specifically to that school's needs. And we want to get all of these teachers through. We run about a five-hour course. Uh, that's, that's, that's feeding through a fire hose still in five hours. As, as you remember, we're going to dump a lot of information, but we're going to do a lot of hands-on stuff over and over again to get you extremely comfortable with managing a multi-system traumatic patient before you're done for the day where you feel very well versed in being able to help and manage. It's, we need to work on stop picking up the phone and videoing when a situation happens, when something terrible unfolds. We need to put the phone down and we need to pick up some type of device or skill set to help them. So our vision is to travel throughout the country in small teams training as many people as possible, standing on top of that mountain and just preaching the medical word and how to be safe with firearms and how to be an effective civilian first responder. Again, exsanguination is the number one cause of preventable death in the world. That's not where it stops. We also need to talk about choking. We've got these terrific mannequins that are going to be choking on things. You actually have to get uh, the obstructions out. CPR, everyone should know CPR, how to operate a defibrillator, an AED, they're everywhere. But do you really know how to operate that? Well, part of our course, you are going to. You're going to get stop the bleed, tension in the thorax, some advanced airway for some of these other, uh, like, for example, fire rescue for law enforcement. We've got tracheas. We've got skin. We're going to actually cut through and do crikes. We're going to do a lot of of advanced things for some folks, but everyone needs to grasp and master the basics. So we want to do that on a national level. Yeah, I, I think that was really what set it apart for me uh, going through the demo, going through the course, is is that hands-on difference. Uh, your experience level obviously sets you apart as well, but but that, you know, you're really taking it to the next level in my personal opinion on um <clears throat> this kind of training and using these very realistic uh, training assistant, you know, th these training uh, techniques, uh, I think really makes it interesting. Makes make, That's what really made me want to have you on the show to talk about it and talk about your experience, talk about your background. It's because it's something that doesn't, like, like we mentioned earlier, just doesn't get enough attention in the gun community. We got a lot of attention on the self-defense aspects, and just not nearly as much on the medical aspects, right. even though really, uh, you know, if you're someone who's, again, if you're committed to carrying a gun every day uh, on the fairly rare circumstance that you're going to run into a deadly force encounter, we're going to need your gun. 
Um, and, and I'm somebody who buys into that. You know, I, I do, <laughs> I do carry a gun every day, but you know, if you, if you're preparing for that very rare circumstance, you should also prepare for a much more likely circumstance that you might have to offer medical assistance to yourself or someone else, uh, who, who's in a, you know, emergency situation before, uh, first responders can even get there because, you know, uh, you can go watch some of the active self-protection videos, uh, that show how quickly someone can bleed out. I, you actually show one in your, uh, in your course. Um, and I believe that the person in that video bled out in like under a minute. That's right. And, you know, if you don't act quickly, if no one acts quickly, if you're hurt and no one is there to help you, you got to help yourself. If you're the only one on the scene with any sort of medical training, basic medical training, you know, you, you might have to act quickly to uh, or, or someone's going to die and you could have prevented it, you know? So that, that's just my thinking on all of this is like, I would love to see more of this stuff. I'm glad to see you guys are putting forward a, a new effort in this realm. And I, I frankly, I was very impressed by it, uh, by your level of, of expertise and by the level of detail in the actual course. So, uh, that's why I wanted to have you on. And, and I, you know, I think other people will be impressed by the courses if they took it as well. Um, speaking of which, how how can people get uh, signed up for a course or reach out to you uh, if they want to have have you come to their local police department or fire department or, or the local school or you know they, they just want they're interested in learning more about how the how to actually take absolutely. It. So well, uh, wextraining.com, W-E-X, wex training.com and also wexgunworks.com so i am kenny at wextraining.com so either way if you go on to wex training we're going to have a plethora of information out there uh, on related to all of our courses some upcoming course dates that we have some of the equipment that we're training with we're uh, getting some video put on there so that it really highlights a lot of the things that we're doing differently in some of the other courses. And I just wanted to mention when you talked about our, our vision is let's talk about the hunter safety just for, you know, a minute because hunter safety, when, where are you hunting at? You're not hunting three to five minutes away from, you know, ambulance or yeah. fire rescue service. It's a good point. So when guys are, you know, when folks are out in the middle of the woods, they, you know, you're on a thousand acre land and you're out there on a tree stand. And what happens? What happens if, well, we've seen hunting accidents that have you know, taken, taken place before. Now what are we going to do? Three to five minutes is not going to, we're not going to have any kind of emergency services there. So basically, so uh, some basic medicine incorporated into hunter safety and, you know, stop the bleed promoted throughout more gun shops and, you know, just some basic curriculum. Uh, going online and doing some of the training videos that we're, that we're working on launching here pretty soon is also another really good way for folks to start getting that information. But we love to travel. Uh, we'd love to come out and work with some of these agencies, other government agencies, fire, law enforcement, teachers, civilians, organizations, uh, Marines. We go out and uh, work uh, in the in the boating industry, sport fish, yachts, uh, all these types of things, because, again, it doesn't medicine doesn't have a specific time and place it can happen at any time anywhere motor vehicle accidents how many times have you been the first one on the scene of a motor vehicle accident hopefully it wasn't that bad but do you have something that you can use to facilitate 
maybe it's you that was involved in that car accident. And maybe somebody that approached you maybe has, has a little bit of medical knowledge. You would, might hope that they would. And maybe you've got some, a medical kit that's in the, uh, in the backseat of your car. Uh, in Europe, that's actually yeah. one of the things I believe you have to pass uh, inspection with is having a medical kit. Here, we're a little bit more lackadaisical on that. But what's more important than your own health? Right. I mean, look, uh, it's not that hard to learn how to apply a tourniquet or to pack a wound or to, uh, you know, use a a bandage, um, a wrap. It's not it's not something that's beyond people's means. And it's it's certainly less expensive to carry around a cat T than it is whatever you're carrying in your holster. That's exactly right. Uh, So either one could save your life. Uh, So I think it's something that. We need more awareness of in the in the gun carrying community, or at least more emphasis on right. it. And uh, so I'm glad to see you guys are doing it. Uh, but hey, thanks for thanks for coming on thanks and lot, sharing Shane. your expertise. And uh, we'll we'll have to have you on again in the future to talk. I more appreciate about this. it. Thanks a lot for the day. Uh, all right, guys. Wextraining.com. I'm here with member Dan Rothschild. To, uh, to do a little bit of, of members segment. We haven't done one of these in a little while, so I'm, I'm glad to be back into it. Uh, get to talk to some of the people who have subscribed to the Reload, bought a membership, are really making this what it is. So, uh, Dan, why don't you introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do, where you live, that kind of thing. Sure. Thanks for uh, having me on, Stephen. Uh, my name is Dan Rothschild. I live in Arlington, Virginia. Uh, grew up in Houston, Texas. And uh, in my day job, I'm the executive director of the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Wonderful. Good, good think tank over there. I like, uh, long enjoyed the work that you guys produce, but, uh, but what, what, did, what got you into guns? We're not, we're not here to talk about, uh, Mercatus. I'd want to actually just talk a little bit more about you and, and your background. And so what, what is it that got you into firearms in the first place? Do you own guns? Do you like to go shooting? I, I do own guns. I like to go shooting. Uh, but you know, it, it wasn't always that way. I, I grew up, uh, as I said, in, in Houston, Texas, where, you know, guns are fairly normative. I learned gun safety from, from Eddie, the NRA Eagle from the time that I was eight years old through Cub Scouts shooting BB guns and then into Boy Scouts shooting 20 gauge shotguns and 22 LR rifles. So I, I kind of grew up um, even though I didn't own any guns, it, guns were, as as uh, uh, David Yamane, the, the sociologist at, at Wake Forest University, puts it, uh, guns are normal and normal people have guns. And that was kind of always my uh, my the, the the culture that I grew up in. Uh, and then it really yeah. wasn't even until a, a few years ago that, that I kind of started getting into firearms again, I guess, picking up the, the habit from Boy Scouts and boyhood. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Um... We actually had David on the podcast a couple episodes ago. You might have you might have listened to that yeah. one, but uh, he's wonderful. But but you could tell uh, the the think tank origins in there with the normative. That definitely comes across. But, Never um, use a short word when a long word will uh, uh, can be put in there. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. Um, but so so what do you do now? Now that you've gotten back into it, what is your what do you what do you like to use guns for? Is it, you know, home defense, uh, you, you target shoot, do you do competitive shooting? What, what are you kind of, what are you into? You know, and it's one of the things that, that I kind of didn't know when I, I first started getting back into guns a few years ago was just how many different varieties of, of gun, gun culture there are. Um, I'm mm. not, you know, generally a, a real tactical guy. Uh, I've built a, a couple of 22 long rifles that I like shooting with my daughter. Um, I, I do believe it's important that kids understand uh, the safety of firearms, you know, how to mm. uh, how to use guns safely. 
because I think a big part of the problem, and, and a lot of your reporting has touched on this, is the fact that people don't have uh, a familiarity with firearms and they have a difficult time understanding and relating to, to things that they don't understand. So I like building. I like shooting 22s. Um, I uh, have done a couple of Appleseed courses, which I really recommend to, to anyone out there who's interested in, in improving their proficiency. Um, done some tactical courses. There are you know a lot of good offerings in the kind of Northern Virginia and West Virginia area. Um, and I, you know, just like learning about guns. There's an entire culture here. I like uh, learning about the the um, uh, the, the uh, mechanics. I, I feel like I've just kind of started mm. to scratch the the surface of of everything that one can learn um, relating to the physics and engineering and everything else. Oh yeah, I think that's a big part of what hooks uh, a lot of people into the hobby uh, of gun ownership uh, is the the engineering aspect of it. All the the aspect of working with your hands. That's why I think you see a lot of crossover between people who enjoy guns, especially people who enjoy working on their own guns, you know, building their own guns and people who like cars, you know, and like working on cars and building cars. Uh, and you actually see this a lot on YouTube. Actually, you'll see a lot of the, the gun YouTubers doing crossover uh, collaborations with uh, the car YouTubers. Yeah. So I think there's definitely something to I, I did an uh, intermediate carbine class at um, Peacemaker a few months ago out in West Virginia. And the instructor started the introductions by asking, how many people do I have here who work in IT? And probably a quarter of the people in the class raised their hands. And he said he's never had a never taught a class where he didn't have at least one IT person in the crowd. Yeah, that makes sense, too, because I, I also enjoy I enjoy building ARs. Right. And I enjoy building computers. And it's I think it'd be surprising to a lot of people how similar the experience is, because uh, you're building in most cases from parts, right? So, so you're taking parts that were made by someone and then you're forming together into a custom build uh, that meets whatever needs you're looking for out of, out of that particular build. And uh, that's the same across ARs and cars and computers. So I definitely think there's a lot of crossover appeal, you know, like you're talking and, about. And always and, opportunities uh, to upgrade and tinker and change things around. Right. And make stuff stop working in the process. And then you've got to figure out what to do to get it going again. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's a big part of it. And then, uh, and then <laughs> uh, of course, the uh, classic time where you think this is a simple task is going to take five minutes and then it snowballs into a, for five hours uh, over something. <laughs> some problem that you run into. That's another shared experience across computers and cars and guns. Exactly. I think, but uh, yeah, no, I think that's an underrated part of, and an undercovered part really of the, the gun owning experience. It's, it's not just about, that's the thing about guns is like, there's a lot of different reasons why someone might own a gun uh, beyond just hunting, which is commonly referred to as basically the only reason in, in most media outlets, but obviously you have self-defense, you have, competition shooting you have the engineering aspect of it there's so much there that draws in so many people that's why you know there's 120 million people report having a gun in the home according to pew from a poll a couple of years ago like it's it's a very common thing and i think it's in part because it appeals to so many people for so many different reasons yeah i really got into trap shooting also during covid because kind of my my uh understanding of the science was you can pretty much do anything outside safely and uh without having kids to take to activities you know every weekend and every evening it was relatively easy to get out to bull run get out to the isaac walton league shoot a couple of rounds of trap entered a couple of tournaments 
uh, nothing to write home about. But you know, it's it's a good yeah, experience. Fun. It's, it's fun to learn something new. And and in the world of firearms, there's always new stuff that you can learn about. Yeah, that's another thing too. There's just like uh, like women with shoes. There's a million different shoes for for million different purposes. And it's the same thing with guns uh, or men with shoes too. There's lots of men who own lots of different kinds of shoes. <laughs> but the point is, you know, you got different guns for different things. Uh, different people want to use their guns for different activities. So, uh, and, and, and as a with lot shoes, of you can pick up a pair for 20 bucks at uh, Payless, or you can, you know, buy a $2,000 pair of Christian Louboutins. That's right. That's right. It's, it's very similar. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so uh, what is it that got you uh, interested in the reload in particular? Yeah, you know, it's, it's really interesting because as I, as I got more into uh, guns and learning about firearms and, and, and learning about the, the politics and the culture surrounding them, you know, I recognized there just wasn't a lot of really good reporting on this. There frankly just wasn't a lot of reporting on this at all. Um, as, as you know, you and I had talked about most of the people who were kind of working in this space. Um, even if they weren't hostile to firearms, they just didn't know very much about them. Um, and right. so it was a, it was a really missing opportunity. I, I thought I'm really glad that, that, you know, you started the reload because I, I, I think it's fantastic what you're actually doing, following the, the business of the firearms industry, the politics surrounding it, the culture surrounding it. I mean, all of these things really intersect in, in a lot of different ways. But uh, the majority of, of people who are, are kind of writing about this are, are general assignment reporters or they're writing about it explicitly from the perspective of um, the, the negative things that we associate with firearms. So they're writing from a, a, a crime and justice perspective, for instance. And I think that that, that really you know, uh, misses an opportunity. So it was really, really good to see, as we're increasingly seeing in this, um, you know, this new media age, uh, people who are, are really expert in something uh, that they can you know, make, it a, make it a full-time occupation and really break down what's happening. They've got good connections in the field. They understand what's happening and they can make, it, uh, make sense of it for, for those of us who are, are trying to learn more. Well, wonderful. Well, uh, we really appreciate you coming on just to give us a little bit of insight into another Reload member. I always enjoy doing these segments, see what kind of community we're building here uh, with the Reload and, and the kind of people who are supporting what we do, because, you know, this uh, this would not be possible without the members. I mean, that's the bottom line. This is a self-funded, completely independent publication that at this moment gets 100% of our revenue from memberships. So uh, I always like to try and dig a little deeper into who we've got uh, in our, in our group, in our community. And uh, so I appreciate you coming on and just sharing a little bit of that with it's us. It's a great publication. Thanks for doing it. And thanks for having me on. That is all we have for you this week. Remember to head over to reload.com if you would like to buy a membership so you can get early access to this podcast and have the opportunity to appear in a member segment. Plus, you'll get access to all sorts of exclusive news reports and analysis pieces. Until next week, I'm Stephen Gutowski, and I will see you again soon.